welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The following episode is called Hunting, Shooting, Fishing, and hopefully will be much lighter than the previous chapters on my school days. But that said, I don't mean to gloss over the shooting of wildlife for sport or for pleasure. I personally took little pleasure in blood sports, despite growing up in a hunting family. Now, I'm not criticising people who enjoy organised legal hunting. That probably sounds a little like a cop-out, but maybe just listen to the next few podcasts and make up your own mind. Having said that, it's very important right now that I have to explain to you that hunting back in the 50s, the 60s, and even the 70s wasn't as divisive as it is nowadays. Whilst I wouldn't call hunting camp holidays common practice, in fact, They were quite rare amongst my friends and colleagues. It certainly wasn't the exclusive and, may I say, distasteful realm as seen on social media today. Shooting a lion from the back of a Land Rover, this was not. This was man versus beast. But I digress. You see, not all holidays were hunting camps. We did occasionally make the long journey across the continent to spend time in Byra on the Mozambique coast. Back in the 1960s, much of sub-Saharan Africa was still in the last gasps of colonialism. Portugal was losing interest in its colonies. Byra nestled in the curve of Mozambique on the Portuguese East African coast was the height of sophistication to three little kids with mud between their toes. Of course, to the adults, it was exotic and terribly European. Donning our rose-tinted specks, we would tiptoe around the sewer, bubbling away merrily in the hotel lobby, reach across the slumbering receptionist, and drop off our room keys. The hospitality industry was, well, somewhat haphazard in Mozambique. Communications were worse. I mean, tarmac roads had such deep, rough edges that they shredded your car tyres every time you tried to make way for an oncoming vehicle. The braver souls refused to get off the road for love or money and played a daring game of chicken or as the Portuguese called it, Galinha. Hospitals were, now, hospitals were an absolute no-go area. They were a death trap. People went there to die. And the idea of travel insurance was non-existent. But all of that meant absolutely nothing, because the beaches were quite simply some of the best in Africa, if not the world. 
fringed with white coral sand that squeaked beneath your feet, and mile upon mile of great roaring rollers tumbling in from the Indian Ocean. There was, of course, the food. Mozambique prawns were world famous, the Vino Verde and Matthias Rose legendary. To farmers, the straw growing out of their ears, this was heaven. We usually drove the 350 miles to Byra. The train was an option, we had done that once, but this took three days. Driving meant that we could stock the car boot full of illegal goods, which we hoped to sell once in Mozambique. We stashed elephant tusks beneath the bedding and under our feet a ton of gorgeous, colourful, semi-precious stone eggs. All the rage back then and something that would come back to haunt me later in life. There were coolers full of fillet steaks and coils of bourreau stacked up against spicy beef biltong wrapped in old copies of the Rhodesia Herald. Under our seats, we shoved cartons of contraband cigarettes, carton after carton of good old Rhodesian Virginia. Rarely did these efforts ever pay off. Rather than being shortchanged by some clever grafter, we more often than not sheepishly smuggled the wretched stuff back into Rhodesia. Sometimes smuggling didn't stop at inanimate objects. A few times we even smuggled in our poor nanny across the border. She didn't have a passport and as we neared the border post, nanny would be unceremoniously shoved beneath our feet and covered in anything deemed suitable, blankets, fishing tackle, once even a jerry can of petrol. Poor dear nanny, she took it all in her stride. And to be fair, she absolutely loved those trips, often borrowing a bathing suit from one of the madams and going for a dip in the Mukulumvura. I have an abiding memory, as a six-year-old, of women sunbathing on the Byra beach, a glass of Matthias eternally clasped in hand. Each day was a different swimsuit with matching floral bathing caps. The men would lounge around drinking Laurentina lagers or smuggled stumpies of castle, keeping a casual eye on us kids getting dumped by huge waves that would send us careering towards an old, jagged and rusted shipwreck. From a tender age, I remember making sure those breakers would roll me up against the legs of the sexy Portuguese surfer boys. I was able to swim like an otter from the age of three, so my spluttering and blinking and blind reaching out for help was mostly a big act. The surfers would gladly gather me up in their lithe, oiled and bronzed bodies and carry me to the shallows. Their body-hugging speedos excited me. Gosh, it was confusing to say the least. There was no way of knowing why I felt this way, no person to speak to about it, no literature to help as guidance. The desire to make a fool of myself in front of the surfers was far stronger 
than the need to repress it. I knew it was wrong, but I was too young to be able to do anything about it. As determined as I was to get a cop of the hairy, oiled legs of the surfers, I was equally determined to hide these strange, queer feelings, particularly as I grew up and became more aware. This would be the first step on a long journey towards becoming tougher, rowdier, and more obnoxious than anyone else on the block. I constructed a smokescreen that would dog me most of my young days. Frankly, I was the most vocal of all my gang and my diaries are pretty clear about this. By the time I was in my teens, I had become expert at deception. My walls covered in James Dean and Grease posters had nothing to do with Rebellion or Olivia and everything to do with John and James. I would listen over tea as wives nonchalantly waved their hands and spoke about having nothing against queers. I just worry that they will grow up lonely, they would say. My smokescreens of asexual and androgynous pop and film stars, my swearing, my deliberate anti-fashion sensibilities and my pretense at being an alpha male led me spiralling down a dark tunnel. In short, I developed extreme internalised issues about my sexuality, leading me horribly close to become a nasty little homophobic racist just for the sake of smoke and mirrors. And deep down, even back then, I hated it, and I hated myself for it. The music never stopped in Byra. By all accounts, Byra was the Paris of Africa. By day, the beaches were a constant parade of scantily clad sun worshippers. But by night, the city came alive. Big bouffant hairdos, false eyelashes, glittering sequined gowns in midnight blue and silver. The men in smart shirts and sharp slacks and brill-creamed hair, mingling, unsuspectingly, with the pimps and mulatto rent boys outside the nightclubs. First, a meal at Johnny the Greek for his famous garlic prawns, swimming in butter and lemon and a few bottles of vino verde again and again to wash it all down. Then a short stagger down the street to the Moulin Rouge. Seedy by day, seedier by night. This was the favourite club where you could mix with the glamorous and the gorgeous, the whores, the thieves and the shit-kickers. One evening, the group piled into their cars and drove off to the club, its neon windmill flickering in the oily puddles on the side street. Dark-skinned women with large afros and tight frocks stretched over their ample breasts, beckoned to the men in a suggestive manner. 
Vem cá, bonitão. Anda comigo, meu querido. És mesmo giro. Queres beber um copo comigo? Foda, foda. Fuck, fuck. Ah, estou a perder o meu tempo. Foda-se. When they received little response, the language became slightly more colorful. Fuck! Fuck! They would jerk their hips in suggestive, humping motions. Ugh! I'm wasting my time. Fuck you. The wives would laugh, hugging their husbands in a proprietorial manner, having understood absolutely none of the dialogue. Come on, sweetheart, let's get inside. I'm dying for a drink. By now the place was at full throttle. Throngs of Portuguese, South African and Rhodesian men, uncomfortable in jackets and ties, foreheads shining with sweat in the foggy atmosphere, would loosen their collars and roll up their sleeves. Mulatto waitresses' bosoms spilling out of their decolletages carried trays of cocktails and champagne above the heads of the couples, slow dancing on the floor. from the side rooms where the illegal gaming took place reached a crescendo each time someone won a bet. Olé! Olé, olé! The clack of the roulette, the laughter, the fado and the jazz bands barely visible across the room through the fog of cigarette smoke. In darker corners, hungry eyes devoured the sexy Latino asses of the women and the men. Overhead, red-shaded chandeliers cast an ethereal hue on the faces of the beautiful and the horny. Des Bentley, a family friend and true gentleman in every sense of the word. Actual name, Desmond Ponsonby Mullach Bentley, if you please, but nicknamed Mulecock for, well, for obvious reasons was left faffing about in the car, locking doors and closing windows while the rest of the gang trooped into the nightclub. If anyone in Mbukwe's district epitomised Englishness and charm, it was old Mulecock. Educated at Hilton College, arguably South Africa's premier boarding school, Des embodied all that was elegant and sophisticated in a man an accomplished cricketer and sportsman, Cary Grant good looks and a successful farmer. He was quite a man. Dressed to the nines, looking utterly charming and undeniably handsome, 
He checked the back seat for any left items, took a backward step and plunged straight into an open manhole, sinking up to his neck in shit. And bloody Portuguese shit, he liked to remind us later. It was a dilemma few people could have or would have handled with such style and aplomb. His wife Myrtle had the hotel keys and all the money. Des had little choice. Pulling himself out of the sewer, he glared at the two tarts who two minutes earlier had been harassing him. And chin held high as if nothing in the world was amiss, he walked up the steps and into the club, pausing briefly to take in the crowd and locate his wife. He straightened his shoulders and strode across the room to Myrtle. Memes, darling. Please may I have the keys, he held out a soiled hand. What the hell are you looking at, he said to a waiter. Now please, darling, if you don't mind. Myrtle gingerly dropped the keys into his hand, and with that he about turned and walked proudly back out onto the street and, oblivious to the stairs of revellers along the way, down to the beach where he quietly dug a hole removed all his clothes and buried them in the sand. After a dip in the sea to wash off the shit, he walked along the beach stark naked through a stunned hotel lobby and back up to his room. I expect the concierge would have copped an eyeful of Der Mulecock had he not been asleep at his desk. One hour later, Des was back at the nightclub, ordering a well-earned drink, much to the ad admiration and cheers of all around him. <laughs> Every evening when the adults were out, their children were left to fend for themselves, looking back. It seems extraordinary that a bunch of farm kids would be left to their own devices running riot through a foreign hotel. But then again, we spent so much time away from our folks they probably didn't even notice. Back then, the hotel of choice for most farmers was the Estrel, a rather shabby family-style cinder block on the main promenade. Next door was the posher Dom Carlos. Mandy, Duncan and I, together with Peggy and Jenny Strong and the Hammond kids, were given the freedom of the place, annoying other guests by constantly going up and down the lifts. This was endless fun. Hell, we had never been in a lift before. We would run down the corridors singing the latest Petula Clark song, appropriately called Downtown or our favourite Skeeter Davis song, Sunglasses. Tuneless and repetitive, until one or more guests would poke their heads out the door and scream to us to bugger off.
The parents had told us that we could go to the Dom Carlos as a treat and eat seafood. Just put it on the hotel account, darling. And so we did, making the most of it. Well, at least I did. I always have had expensive tastes. Seated in the plush, velvety bonquette, staring down at the confusion of cutlery, a butter knife, a soup spoon, a fish knife and a meat knife, a white napkin starched into a nun's cornet. And then there was the menu. Encased in burgundy leather with gold embossed text and a green tassel, pages of delicacies seemed to fight for space on each sheet of heavy, bonded cream vellum paper. A plethora of exotic foods, all magnificently scripted in Portuguese curlicues and flourishes. Oysters, shrimp, crayfish, kingfish, cherry stone clams, the complete frutos de mar. Peggy, take control, my sister whispered. Peggy stared at us as if we had asked her to abseil off the top of a granite copy. OK, well, who knows Portuguese, cut in Duncan. I knew one word, thermidor. Legosta thermidor, por favor, waiter, I said, with as much conviction as I could muster. Are you mad, my brother said. Waiter, I will have spaghetti, so will my sister. So will we, chorused Peggy and Jenny. The waiter retreated through the swing doors, returning 15 minutes later with a large tray held above his shoulder. Delicious aromas of cognac and gruyere escaped from the bubbling shellfish as the waiter lifted the silver cloche in a blood and thunder swipe. His pinky extended to show off his long hooked nail and like a matador, proudly performing his final pasa de pecho, before plunging his sword between the shoulders of the raging bull, he triumphantly explained, Surpresa! On the plate, beneath a rather small lump of bubbling cheese, sat my lagosta. What a disappointment! Unfortunately, when it came time to pay the bill, the maitre d', by now quite fed up with these awful precocious children, refused to accept credit. Flapping his hands in a fabulously camp way, with strangulated vowels, quite possibly from the painfully tight trousers he was wearing, he croaked at us all. You children will be doing the dishes tonight. Please excuse my accent. Crikey, we thought, washing dishes was as good as a stint in jail, and a byra jail at that. Worse, we had never been made to wash up before. Back home, we had staffed to do that kind of thing. In a panic, we rushed back to the estral, running up and down the corridors, knocking on the doors of sleepy and extremely irritated guests explaining our situation and asking for money. With a tatty piece of paper, Peggy, being the sanest and most administrative-minded, wrote down each name, room number and amount. 
Room 412, Mr. Edward Jenkins, Crossroads Farm, Four Escudos. Room 301, Mrs. Jane Kemp, Bulawayo, Eight Escudos. Room 323, Mr. and Mrs. Oh, it was a bit of a scribble, we couldn't remember. Anyway, Ten Escudos. And so on, until finally we reached the right amount. Sheepishly walking back to the Dom Carlos, hangdog looks and pockets full jingling with coins, we paid the bill. Much to the sniggering of some diners, and I believe to the admiration of the manager. I doubt if he expected us to return. Good, honest Rhodesian kids. For practical purposes, I'm going to split this episode into different parts. If you're interested in listening to the hunting camp section, tune in for the next episode. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.